One of our children's favorite movies is Old Yeller. Have any of you seen this movie? So there's this, there's this scene in Old Yeller where Arliss and Travis, their brothers, and their father has gone on a trip. I think he's um, running cattle. Is that what he's doing? And Arliss asks his older brother, how far off is heaven? And Travis says, oh, I don't know, a fur piece, I guess. And Arliss said, is heaven as far off as Papa went? Now, they lived in Texas. And, and, and Travis said, a heap further than that. So Arliss asked, where does Papa go to anyway? Kansas. <laughs> now, this image of heaven as this far off place, right? It's everywhere in our culture. It's not just in these great movies that we watch, um, that we let our children watch and learn about what's real and sometimes not real. But it's in our music, you know, it's in our good old gospel music. The most, does anybody know what the most recorded gospel song in history is? I'll Fly Away. away. (laughs) And listen to these lines. Some bright morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. To that home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, right? I'm getting the heck out of this place. Then there's the last stanza um, of one of my favorite songs, one of the greatest songs written in, in contemporary gospel music, contemporary within the history of the world. How great thou art. The last stanza. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me. Home. Take me away from this place. Take me home. What joy will fill my heart. And it's not just Christian music, church music over the last 200 years. One of John Lennon's most enduring songs, Imagine. He rejects religion because of this view. And I think he's right. We should reject a religion that has that view. And the Lost Lonely Boys, they hit it big, right? Uh, a few years ago with, anybody know, their song that got them on the charts? How far is heaven? This, this picture of heaven as this far off place, it's so deeply rooted in Western thought. It's so deeply rooted in, in American ways of thinking. It shows up in church and in Hollywood and in the Beatles. You know, it shows up everywhere. And it Because of this view of where heaven is, when we read Acts chapter 1, we know what it means. But we're wrong. Right? I mean, look look at Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, when you read that verse and you believe that heaven is this far off place. This other place, somewhere out there past Pluto. When you read this verse, then you know what happened, right? Jesus left us to go off in the distance to heaven. But that's not right. And if you didn't have John Lennon, the Los Lonely Boys, Arliss and Travis and I'll Fly Away. If you didn't have this view, you would see something entirely different playing in this passage of Scripture. In fact... The cultures that produced the Bible, they didn't believe heaven was a far off place. So Luke, who wrote this part of the Bible, that was nowhere in his consciousness. That that wasn't anywhere on his radar. In fact, the opposite was in his mind. 
And so Luke, who recorded this passage of Scripture that we read, that Amelie read to us out of Acts, Luke was making a powerful political statement that we don't hear because of this lens that we have covering our eyes as we read this passage. Luke, you see, Luke who wrote this passage, the Jews in the Old Testament, the Jews in the New Testament who become Christians, throughout the Bible, the cultures that produce these documents we call the Bible, when it comes to heaven and earth, they weren't talking about geography. They weren't talking about places. They weren't talking about location. In in the Bible, heaven and earth are not two different locations. Heaven out there somewhere past Pluto and earth here. And heaven is this thing that, hallelujah, when I die, I get to leave this painful, suffering place and go to that place that we call heaven. That's, That's an invention. That's a fiction of the last several hundred years. It actually comes from Plato and not from Jesus. It's pagan. According to the cultures that produce the Bible, heaven and earth are not two different locations. They're two different dimensions of the same reality. Now, that's fundamental to the Jewish cosmology, the Jewish way of thinking about the cosmos, how the world and the architecture of the universe, fundamental to the biblical view of the structure of the universe is that heaven and earth are not two locations. They are two dimensions of the same location. And that changes everything about what Luke is telling us in the end of his gospel and in the beginning of Acts and what Daniel is telling us in his passage and what the psalm was telling us that we were reading. That heaven and earth are these two dimensions. That heaven is the dimension where God is visibly present. He's visible. And earth, that's our dimension of reality. Now, part of our confusion is that we've got this alien worldview to the Bible. In lots of ways. But just one of the ways our worldview is alien to the Bible is in our cosmology. Our view of how the universe is made. And one of the things that really trips us up and then keeps us tripped up is that in the Bible, the word heaven and the word earth are often used to be two different things in two different ways. So, for example, sometimes in the Bible the word heaven is plural. Heavens. And typically in the Bible, when heaven is plural, it means the skies. Not every single time. We still use it that way today, don't we? Don't we use the word heaven in two ways? This place you go to when you die and um, the heavens, the skies. Okay, the Bible uses the word heaven in both ways. Typically, it lets you know by making it plural or not, but not every time. And it's the same with the word earth. Sometimes in the Bible, it means the soil under our feet. Right? Like, um, he's digging in the earth. Right? But we use it also to mean the whole globe. Right? Well, they used it in two different ways. The earth being the soil under our feet. But oftentimes in the Bible, earth means our dimension of reality. This dimension of reality where God is invisible. So this is what's going on in Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. Now, there the plural means God's dimension. Remember, I told you it's not every time. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to human beings. 
Now, it was a Western misunderstanding of heaven and earth that led some Christians a hundred years or so ago to say that Christians should not fly because the heavens belong to God and the earth is man's rightful place. Keep your feet on the ground. That's where God made you to go. If he had wanted you to fly, he would have given you feathers. (laughs) Esther still believes. Shh, don't tell Esther. Now, look. I know that for some of you, if if this is the first time you're hearing this, you think I've drunk the red Kool-Aid, you think I've had a bad hit of some sort of drug or something. This is really... But look, a change of perspective always is. I've told you this before. Two salmon swimming up the stream, right? Old salmon comes swimming back across their path. Old salmon says, how's the water, guys? One salmon, the two young guys, one salmon looks at the other and says, water, what's that? And look, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to point out the lens of your eye, right? You don't, you don't notice your eyes, lint, the lens of your eyeball. You look through it and you see reality through it. The problem is there are beliefs we have that we really believe came from Jesus and it's just the way it is, but they didn't. And Christianity makes us weird in all sorts of ways. But one of the ways it makes us weird is that we believe the universe is built differently than our culture believes it was built. Now with this in mind, we're ready to scratch the surface of the ascension and to figure out what's going on here. I'm going to divide the the sermon into two parts, okay? The first part, what does the ascension teach us about Jesus? Because Luke is making a political statement about who Jesus is. What does the ascension tell us about who Jesus is? And then what does the ascension tell us about our life here on this earth? Okay, so first of all, the ascension means that Jesus is Lord. If heaven is God's dimension, another thing that heaven is in the Bible, it's the, it's the control room, right? I grew up in Houston. In Houston, Texas, there are lots of plants, like industrial plants, factories, not a lot of the other kind of plants, the green kind. Um, it's a different color green. It's kind of a neon glowing green. So every, most everybody I knew growing up, I mean, that, here there are farmers, there you're, you're a, um, a shift worker. That's right, okay? Now, in these plants that blow up periodically, there's um, miles and miles of pipes and stacks and all this stuff. And somewhere in that plant is a control room. And it's got super thick concrete walls because when the plant blows up, somebody's got to be in there turning switches to turn things off. That control room controls the plant. Heaven is the control room of earth. So what is Luke saying when Jesus ascends into heaven? It's like saying John ascended to the CEO's office, right? It's like saying... Alec has moved up to be a principal. Do you see? He's making a statement about authority and power. In other words, to a Jewish worldview, Jesus was enthroned as king. This was his enthronement, right? This was, this was his procession to the throne room at the end of a very long and painful journey. So what is Luke saying? He's saying, Caesar, you think you run this world? You're wrong. Luke is making a dangerous political statement to the Roman Empire. He is saying, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. There is only one God. And that is Jesus. And every other God, whether his name is Caesar or he's in the pantheon, every other God is a false God, a deceptive God, a non-God. Jesus alone is the only God. Now that's, that's a strong statement to make in the teeth of the Roman Empire at this time. The second thing that the ascension tells us is that Jesus has a body. 
right now. Because, right, he didn't dissolve into a spirit and then ascend. He had just spent 40 days, right, with his disciples. What was he doing with them? Eating with them? Drinking with them? They were touching his scars? He was establishing his physicality. And it is with a physical body that Jesus ascends into the dimension of God. Jesus takes a physical body. He takes stuff of this earth and he ascends into the spirit realm. And so suddenly now in God's dimension, there is a down payment. There is proof that it's all going to come back together again. When Jesus finished his work on this earth... He did not just dissolve into a spirit. He's fully human. He's embodied. But he's not here. And that's the third thing that's quite shocking that the ascension tells us. Jesus is absent. He's not here. I mean, to take seriously the fact that the flesh and blood Jesus has ascended to the Father is to realize in one very important sense, Jesus is gone. But but not gone in terms of distance, right? Because he didn't go out to heaven someplace past, past Pluto. See, that's what you think if you read this passage with our Western eyes. Jesus is not here doesn't mean he's not... In this location, it means he's not in this dimension. But remember, heaven and earth are two overlapping, interlocking dimensions of the same reality. Now, there's a story in the first part of the Bible. The part of the Bible that as Christians we call the Old Testament. It's in the book of, Levi- of Exodus. And I, for me, it helps me wrap my mind around the pain and the joy of the ascension. Israel is gathered around the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses, their leader, has gone up to the top of the mountain to meet with God. And the mountain is engulfed in this impenetrable cloud. And they can't see Moses. And they freak out. And so what do they do? They make a golden calf. They want a God and a leader that they can see and feel and taste and touch. Uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, in his fabulous poem, In Memoriam, the, the, the heart of the poem is him meditating on this, this scene, this incredible scene. And that's exactly how it is for us today, isn't it? Our Savior has ascended into the presence of the Father, into heaven, into God's dimension. In heaven, it's like UV rays, Right? It's a part of this reality, but we can't see it, right? We know it's there. But whether you even know it's there or not, UV rays are still there, right? We can't see Jesus. He is hidden from our eyes. There are rumors of His glory everywhere. But He's nowhere to be seen except by the eye of faith. And let's be honest, that stinks. I mean, we're a lot like Israel, aren't we? Why can't He be here? Doesn't that stink? I mean, aren't there times in your life where it would be so much easier if Jesus was flesh and blood right in front of you right now? But, it's this, but his ascension has created this time of testing for us. And it's tough right now. It's tough waiting 
and persevering and believing. So every week we come to worship and we confess in the creed that he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come again. We long for that. He will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And we say it during communion, don't we? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And there's pain in that. Every time we gather for worship, we confess his absence and we long. We long for his return. Did you know this is actually how the Bible ends? The very last two verses of the Bible. The last two verses. The next to last verse, Jesus says, Surely I'm coming soon. I'm coming back. The last verse of the Bible, the church cries out, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. In other words, that's what we need. It's what the angels tell the disciples in our passage. Look, if you have your Bible, look again at Acts chapter 1. This passage Amelie read to us. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. The angels tell the disciples, This Jesus who was taken up from you. There's pain in that word, isn't it? What does it mean when somebody's wife is taken from them? Do you, do you, this Jesus who was taken up from you, he's gone. Will come. He will come back. This is where we're living. So the ascension of Jesus in Acts and Daniel's prophecy of it. And in Luke, it means that Jesus is Lord alone. That Jesus has a body. And that in one sense, uh, an important sense, that we all feel on a visceral level, he's absent. Now, what does all that mean for us? What does the ascension say about how we live our lives? Because it says a lot about Jesus, but it also says a lot about living and about life. First of all, the ascension opens our eyes to the importance of the earth. This earth. How we treat this earth. You see, the ascension is a foreshadowing of what God... Remember, Jesus rose from the dead, right? He was corporeal. He was material. He, you could see him and feel him and tasting him and touching, right? He was made out of the stuff of this earth. And he took the stuff of this earth that constituted his body. And where did he go with it? He went with it into the dimension of heaven. And that is a foreshadowing that one day, all of the stuff of this earth is going to be united once again with heaven. In other words, how you treat this earth matters. When we say it's all going to burn up, remember fire can do two things. It can destroy, but it can also cleanse. And when the Bible talks about the earth being burned up, it's a cleansing. It's not an erasure. It's a renewing. It's a making new. So this is... Why the earth matter? By holding on to the physical created matter of his body as he ascended into heaven. Jesus is like earnest money. He's like a down payment. He's a pledge that all of the other real physical created stuff will be renewed when Jesus returns and judges all things. Now we've talked a lot about this over the past few months. Jesus is in heaven ruling the world, but one day when he returns, he will make that rule complete. And when he does, heaven and earth will be fully united. 
Again and again we've seen this fact. So you know what it means? It means that salvation and redemption are not redemption from this world. A biblical view of redemption is the redemption of this world. It's not, I'll fly away, hallelujah. It's God's going to heal this place, hallelujah. That's the hallelujah. Leaving this place, really, really. Can you, do you know what we call people who don't have bodies? Ghost. It freaks us out. It's unnatural. It's not right. We make horror movies out of that kind of stuff. A disembodied state is not where God wants us to be shouting glory about. When the New Testament speaks of God's kingdom, it never, ever refers to heaven pure and simple. It always refers to God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Aren't we taught to pray that? Your kingdom come, your will be done, and take me out of this place? No, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. That's what we're longing for. We're longing for this earth to be put back the way it was meant to be. Now, I've taught so much on that, I'm going to just move on. Number two, the ascension matters not only for how we treat the world, but the ascension matters for how we treat each other. In John's gospel, when Jesus is on trial, Pilate says, Behold the man. Now, we talked about that at Easter, right? That what's going on there, and the reason John records it in his gospel, is that God wants us to know that Jesus is a true human. And that if you want to be truly human, you live the way Jesus lived. That Jesus took on body not just to show us God, but to show us true humanity. To show us what it means to be really human. In his most famous sermon. Wait, 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 wait. So think about the ascension as God vindicating Jesus. Jesus says, I'm God. He makes all these audacious, bold, arrogant claims. And the ascension is his enthronement. So the ascension is God vindicating, saying, he was right. I'm testifying and I'm... I'm I'm witnessing to Jesus' rightness. But look, it's not only the vindication of Jesus' words. The ascension is the vindication of Jesus' way of life. In other words, the ascension is is the proof. And it is the telling that the way he lived is the right way to live. So in Jesus' most famous sermon, who does he say will inherit the earth? The meek will inherit the earth. And when we look at the way Jesus lived, how did he live? He lived meekly. So meekly, he had all the power of heaven. They nailed him to a cross. And with meekness, he walked through that. Meekness. It's this strength restrained. It's humility. And that's what got Jesus crucified. And that is the way of living that the ascension vindicates. And those who follow that way of living, those of us who embrace a meek life, guess what? We will inherit this earth and we will, in the paradox of all paradoxes, we will rule this earth. Are the meek ruling the earth now? Absolutely not. Can you get ahead now by being meek? Sometimes if things are weird. (laughs) I can't imagine Scott and Aaron going through law school and being trained to do what they do, but believing the ultimate reality is meekness. And 
how, how do lawyers learn to be meek? But it's not just them, is it? What about us as parents? How often are we tempted to domination and manipulation? The meek will inherit the earth. Jesus is... His ascension is a vindication of that. But so much of our life is concerned with power. Who's in power? Who's out of power? Who has the power to do this or that? We jostle for power. We imagine that if we just had more power, we could fix this or that situation. We live in an age that is dying for power, but the irony is it's dying of power. I mean, husbands and wives, they have these power games and they vie for power and they both end up losing. Not to mention their children. Nations grab for freedom and when they get it, they fragment into power-hungry factions. And over against the love of power is the ascension. It's the proof, dang it, that the meek inherit the earth. Right at the heart of Christianity stands this ridiculous paradox that that true power is found in the failure and the shameful death of a young Jew At the hands of an empire. The ascension is God's affirmation of the ultimate power of humility and love over against the love of power. It's God saying this earth will be inherited by those who lay down their power. By those who restrain their strength and follow the ascended Lord. This earth will be inherited. It really will be inherited. By people who refuse to be manipulative or to dominate. By people who give themselves away in risky acts of love and humility. So tomorrow's Monday and you have jobs and you work with people. And you're going to get a chance to choose power, restrained, or power that dominates. And you're riding the ticket of your eternity. And tomorrow you have families. And parents, we live with little children. And you have neighbors and you have enemies. And if you want to inherit the earth, remember, it's the meek who will. Now another way that the ascension matters is when it comes to the life. Not just you as an individual, but the ascension matters for us as a church. Okay? Now a church has two purposes and two purposes only. To worship and to work. So I want to talk about how the ascension matters for each of those. First of all, how the ascension matters for the work of the church. Look, when we reduce Christianity to following Jesus into heaven and staying there forever and getting as many people as we can off this sinking ship, right? So that they can live forever in heaven with Jesus. When we reduce Christianity to that, then we deserve John Lennon writing songs like Imagine. When he says, imagine there's no religion. That's what we deserve. But the ascension points to the fact that God has no plans to abandon this place. He has no plans to abandon the physical stuff of reality. God is not going to abandon what he lovingly made so good. Unfortunately, it's the perennial temptation of the church to withdraw from this fallen, violent, broken world. 
That's the temptation of the church, is to pull away and form compounds and form little ghetto subcultures where we don't have to be contaminated by this world, but instead we can protect ourselves so that we can be pure in spirit as we float off into the sky one day and we leave this place to burn. But let us, let the church of the incarnation never do this. May we never shrink back from this world, from this physical, broken, violent world. While we're waiting for his return, we have work to do. And it's not just spiritual work, it's physical work. The calling of the church is not to escape the world, but it's to participate with God in the renewal of his physical world. See, salvation is not purely spiritual. And our work as a church is not purely spiritual. So when we make the mistake of thinking that the main object of the game is to forget earth and to concentrate on heaven. When we make the mistake of thinking that our job is to get people saved for this distant destination. Then for all effective purposes, we're useless. On the other hand. When we really believe in the renewal of all things, we are committing ourselves to a life of responsible engagement with the world. We are committing ourselves as a church to unrelenting devotion to the world for the sake of its transformation. That's one reason we're going to be a downtown church. It's because if we want to work for the renewal of this community, the downtown is of a disproportionate influence to the region. That's the way downtowns work. This is why Alex farming, that I hope you got an email about his chickens. This is why from his farming to Katrina's cooking in her restaurant, this is why that matters. And it's why their work is just as important to God as the work I'm doing right now. It's because food matters. Because our physical being and our built environment matters. Now, the church's purpose is twofold. To work and to worship. Let me now kind of show you what the ascension says to us about our worship. Look, if you have your Bibles, at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Down at verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he, talking about Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, talking about you and me, brothers, saying. Now this, this verse says more to us about what's going on in this room. than you. Look what he says. I will tell of your name. This is Jesus talking. These words are coming out of his mouth. Jesus is saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Who's the your? God. Jesus is saying, I will tell God's name to to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children 
God has given to me. Now, remember I said one of the ways that Christianity makes us weirdos, freaks, is our cosmology, our view of how the universe is built and on top. And here's where it really comes out. What we see here is that the union of the ascended Christ, who has a body, who is real and physical, his union with his people is most fully realized in the congregation, in worship. In the midst of the assembled body of Christians, there is a union between us and the absent Christ. (laughs) This is really an astonishing passage. In the midst of the church, when the church is gathered for worship, we find Jesus praising His Father. Here I am. And not just praising the Father, but He's saying, God, here I am. Here I am. Here am I and the children you've given me. This is why liturgical churches process in. That's what they're symbolizing. That's what they're doing. Jesus leading the way. What's He doing? He's leading us to the Father and He's saying, here I am, God. Here I am. And look at my children that I've brought with me. Look look at the end of verse 13. Can you see it? Can you imagine this? This is what's happening when we worship. There's an invisible world surrounding us. Right now. And just because you can't see UV rays don't mean they're not there. And just because you can't see this happening doesn't mean it's not happening. But remember, I said Jesus is absent. So how does all this work, this absence but this presence? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 2. A few pages to the left. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 6. Ephesians 2, 6. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus. Now listen. To be human is to be physical. And to be physical means you cannot be in two places at once. If places mean location. So how can we be in the heavenlies? If heaven is a far off place. The only way that we can be raised up into the heavens as humans. Is if heaven is a dimension of this reality. Do you see what I'm saying? It's nonsensical otherwise. Part of what the Holy Spirit does in worship, when when Christians gather and they worship God, the Holy Spirit takes us up into the heavenlies. That's why liturgical churches process. Because they are saying, what you do in worship is a journey. And we are symbolically representing that. That we are on a journey into... That's why Orthodox churches, if you've ever been to them, have these huge icon walls. Because they have this... this they're saying physically that we are passing through heaven... In earth, into heaven, but not location, the dimension. That when we gather for worship, there really is a taking up that occurs. The Spirit lifts us up spiritually to worship in the throne room of God. And guess who's there with us? Guess who's in front of us? Guess who's in the middle of us? Acting like Warshak, right? Warshak. 
ooh, ooh, pick me. Here I am. Here I am. Me and all of the children that you've given me. So when we are worshiping this morning, there is something happening that we can't see. Jesus is standing in the middle of us. And his arms are outstretched. And he is offering us to the Father. And he is telling God our names. Alec and Sloan. And he's telling us God's name. And he's praising the Father. And so at the beginning of our worship service... When you, we start with the words, Alleluia, Christ is risen. It is God himself who is calling us to worship. And it doesn't matter if it's the tiniest mud hut in a developing country or in the cathedrals of Europe. The Spirit does this thing where he takes us into the heavenlies. And some mornings we sit here like bumps on a log. All sleepy. But it's still happening. It's still happening. That's how Luke ends his gospel account of the ascension. The passage I read to you, right? This idea. I mean, this is, this is why we do the gospel the way we do it. We're standing up and as a congregation, we're saying there's a reality right now that we can't see, but it's real. Christ is really among us. That's why you need to really stand and really turn and really face. And that's why you need to really kneel and really raise your hands up. You're not working up God's presence. The Spirit takes you there. So that's why you act in these embodied ways. In the end of Luke's gospel, this is what we see. Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, right? This is why I wear a stole. Because I'm saying to you that, I, that, that, that I'm under the authority of Christ. That I'm an image of Christ. And that's why I raise my hands to bless you. Because Christ really does. And we're, he's absent. And we can't see him and feel him. And taste him and touch him. And so God gives us these images. These glimpses. And he raises his hands. And he blesses them. And while he blessed them. He parted from them. And was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple. Blessing God. You see, getting together on Sundays to worship becomes enormously important. Enormously important. Because something really happens here in a unique way that doesn't happen when you're out on the golf course or you're fishing or you're doing whatever you say you do when you connect with God. Yes, you can connect with God. But it's in the congregation that Jesus tells God your name and he tells you God's name. And so we can know and enjoy and be energized by the life of heaven now. That's the gift. Of worship, And that's why Christians all over the world, whether they know this reality or not, worship at the threat of their own lives. That's why. And that's why the Spirit brings them to rooms to worship, knowing that they will be killed for being in that room. Because that reality is so good and so great, it's better. It's better than a martyr's death. And so we can know and enjoy this life. Now look... Every part of Jesus' life is worthy of a lifetime of contemplation. But the ascension, what a wondrous depth. That I know that I've only, in my limited mental and spiritual abilities, 
have just begun to scratch the surface. And so have we. That there is this Christ who has ascended. And he has a claiming and demanding presence in our lives. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?